Under the Controlled Substances Act and Corollary State Law, the growth, trafficking, sale, possession, or consumption of psychedelics may be a felony punishable by imprisonment, fines, forfeiture of property, or some combination thereof. Psychedelical X is for general information only. Information provided on the show does not constitute legal advice, nor does your listening to the show create an attorney-client relationship with the host. Hello, I'm attorney Gary Smith, and I want to welcome you to another episode of Psychedelic Alex, The Law of Psychedelics, my ongoing exploration of the question of the law of psychedelics. <laughs> okay. okay. All right, so hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Psychedelic Alex, The Law of Psychedelics. I am still your host, Gary Smith, attorney at law, and with me for the first time in well over a year is an actual live interviewee. I'd like to welcome to the show Danielle Hernandez. Danielle, welcome, welcome, welcome. Thank you, Gary. Thanks for having me. It's wonderful to have you. And we've been talking about doing this interview for, my God, well over a year. Yeah. And then COVID got in the way. Mm -hmm. Uh, But I will say we're both inoculated. I got Pfizer. You got? Uh, Moderna. Moderna. Oh, so I might be at risk. God damn it. No, I'm kidding. (laughs) I'm sure Moderna's fine. Um, But anyway, we're both taking good precautions, which is why, even though pandemic's still going on, we are here in one another's presence and not masked up. We have a level of trust there. Mm-hmm. Uh, but don't do this at home, kids. Wear your masks. <laughs> in the meantime, though, uh, you come to us from the world of insurance, mm-hmm. and I am freaking excited to have you on here because most people don't even have much, if any, of a clue about how difficult and complex and arcane and dense the world of insurance can be, but it is critical to the world yes. of psychedelics. Yeah. All right. Wonderful. So. Um, starting off, can you tell the folks at home a little bit about yourself, who you are, what you do, and, and how you came to work in the insurance industry? Ah, very fun story. Um, so, as Gary said, I am an insurance agent. I focus primarily um, in cannabis and anything kind of weird. That's always been where I've found myself. So, I started in the industry about 17 years ago. Um, I had just come off being a nanny at the ripe age of 21. Ooh. Uh, and my family moved to Texas and I needed a job. So I did what any enterprising 21 year old would do and I went to a temp agency. And I got hired immediately as a temp for a mom and pop insurance agency and they sort of saw something in me, paid for me to get my license, um, took me under their wing and trained me and then sent me on my lovely way. And ever since then I've been able to um, learn under some of the most bright insurance mines um, in Arizona. And then about six years ago, um, I had a policy opportunity across my desk in the cannabis industry and had absolutely no idea what it was about, where to go, what the coverage even was at that point because it had just, you know, started making an appearance in Arizona. And I kind of just jumped in at that point found markets and tore apart the um, policy. I'm a little bit of a policy nerd. And ever since then, it's just been fun and exciting. And now, you know, we're getting more into the world of psychedelics and I'm getting getting approached with questions 
kind of all over the place. Yeah, and uh, I'm probably guilty of being one of those parties asking you these questions. Which is fine. Yeah, well, I need to resource, it's so fine, wonderful to have you. I get to research uh, stuff. Absolutely. So you, you kind of stumbled into the career of insurance. Absolutely. And, but you've been lingering for 17 years, so it's been working out kind of nicely for I you. I don't know how to do anything other than insurance, besides oh. maybe, like, cook. <laughs> well, if you get paid for that, it works too. Right. All right. Um, that's wonderful. So before we dive into the whole psychedelic nexus of insurance, I'd like to get a little um, basics down for the audience because I, I don't assume that they necessarily have experience with insurance or necessarily know the depths to which insurance goes. So um, starting off, can you just tell the folks don't like what even is insurance? Because I suspect most people don't even necessarily know that answer. Yeah, I mean, we can go really, really basic and talk about insurance as a transfer of risk. So when you buy auto insurance, if you were to get into an accident, you're transferring the risk of having to pay for an exorbitant cost onto the insurance carrier. And so insurance is a legal contract between you and the insurance carrier where if you promise to pay the premium, they promise to cover you in the, in the event of a claim. So when it comes to businesses or um, uh, legal enterprise entities, um, it is all over the place in various insurance requirements that you would want to have in your business. So um, top of the line is general liability. So those are typically broken up into two areas. One is bodily injury. So if you were a restaurant or a store and somebody came onto your property and they fell, the general liability would pay for the slip, trip, and fall, and the ultimate medical costs and coverages. But then there's the other part of it, which is the products liability. And that pays for anything if you're a retailer, if you're a manufacturer, um, or if you're a distributor for the actual product that's going into somebody's hands. Um, so in the case of like laundry detergent, if somebody were to get hurt or have an allergic reaction because of it, or if it was manufactured inappropriately, that's what the insurance would pay for is the ultimate um, loss that a person would sustain. Hmm. So let me let me uh, give an example maybe to walk through it. So uh, I go to Target and I buy a, a tub of Tide Pods, and then I take my Tide Pods home, and then I decide for whatever dumb reason, I'm going to eat one, and I do, mm-hmm. and I get sick from it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I decide to compound my stupidity by also filing a lawsuit premised on the fact that I took a Tide Pod home from Target and ate it. Right. Uh, so I'm going to probably look at suing, oh, I don't know, Tide and Target, because it was a Tide Pod I got from Target. Talk to me about what insurance does in that circumstance. So the insurance would cover the defense in that um, situation. So anytime you're looking at a product's liability type of a lawsuit, like what you just said right now, is... Where the insurance is going to come in and help you primarily is to defend yourself from that claim. So the lawsuit's going to come in, um, and the people at Tide are going to see it, and they're going to render it to their insurance carrier saying, this is not our fault. We just manufactured the, the product. The person got sick, but they use it in an inappropriate manner. Well, what's going to come out is they're going to say, well, did you have a label saying you shouldn't eat it? No, but I didn't think I would have to. Um, one of the things that we can point back to is the McDonald's case. Um, so long ago where that yeah, lady the, spilled the thing. And now the we infamous have the, coffee case. Mm-hmm, now we have all of the By labelings. The way, there is so much mythology around that that's oh, wrong. Yeah. 
but that's for another show. We're not, right. we're not going to get into that today. But for you at home, yeah, look up the McDonald's thing and just know what you see. There's so much more. That lawsuit also came out of New Mexico, which is where I'm from. Yes, yes, yes. Mm-hmm. Yes, so we're setting them out for something there. But back to the uh, products liability. It would pay for your defense, and that's primarily where the most of the money is going to go, especially if you're not found to be at fault. So um, the insurance carrier would pay for the defense. They'd pay for an attorney like you to come in and defend them from the lawsuit. Um, And then if there were any damages that were assessed at that time, um, the coverage would be paid for. The most interesting thing to note about products liability is a lot of times, depending on the form, the defense will be paid for outside of the policy limit. So what I mean when I say that is you have a million dollar limit of liability. So that's the million dollars that the insurance carrier would agree to pay. But if the defense is outside, then the defense is unlimited, which means the carrier doesn't put a sublimit onto that. For the type of products that we'll be discussing today, defense is inside the limit, which means anything that the carrier pays for defense reduces your overall limit of liability. So once you reach that million dollars, you're out and there's no more coverage. Which also, uh, coming from the professional world of attorneys, malpractice insurance also offers those choices. You can get coverage inside or outside of your policy. You pay a premium difference for that sometimes a very precious premium difference, mm-hmm. uh, but it costs extra to get extra. Right. Um, and also, I, I appreciate that we're, we're riffing off the notion of product, but this is also for services, too. You, you can get insurance for services. So, like, in the realm of psychedelics, if I'm, say, a therapist offering mm-hmm. psychedelic-assisted services, uh, I could get in trouble not merely for the psychedelic, but also for the service I'm rendering. Right. And there's separate insurance for that as well. Yeah, so that would be more professional liability um, in that situation, or medical malpractice, depending on where you actually sit right. um, from that. So me, as an insurance agent, I have my own professional liability because I am licensed and I'm held to a certain degree of being a professional. So if I make a mistake then somebody can come to me to recoup any kind of financial loss um, that they might have had because I'm advising them. Same thing for you. Um, So with psychedelics, we have the same thing too. So it really depends on what services you're offering to decide what type of insurance you need to purchase to cover your entity. And presupposes I even can find that insurance too. Yes, depending right. on what you're doing. A- absolutely. What <laughs> portion of whatever product it is that you're doing. And um, the market for insurance for anything right now is pretty prohibitive. Yeah. Um, yeah, and, and, and on that notion, I think it's generally true. You cannot get insurance for illegal conduct. No, especially if you know about it. But that's on any policy form. If you know that there is something that you're doing is illegal, yeah. there is an exclusion right on the policy form. For sure. And, and just to riff off of that for a moment, uh, it is often the case that I'm talking to my cannabis clients about reviewing their insurance policies because often the case they have insurance, but they've never spoken to their broker about the fact that they are specifically and particularly in the cannabis industry. Mm-hmm. And the policies they have purchased don't have a cannabis-friendly provision in them. They just have that generic, hey, if you're doing something illegal, 
uh, yeah, we're not covering you for that clause. <laughs> so is that, are you commonly bouncing into that as well? Because, you know, well, I, yeah. I only see when clients bring it to me, but as a, an insurance agent broker, you're, you're probably seeing that all day long. Yeah, absolutely. So actually what we're seeing right now is a change in just the general arena of insurance where there is now an exclusion being placed on common policy saying if you have anything to do with cannabis, there is no coverage. Oh, so the, the basic policies are now affirmatively stating, oh, by the way, we, we don't cover cannabis. Yeah, it's kind of... It like, used to be implicit, though. It used to be implicit, okay. but now there is a specific endorsement that I'm seeing on innocuous policies that you wouldn't yeah. think somebody would have any exposure to. But what we're seeing, and as I'm sure you're aware, people are trying to jump into this space as fast as possible, thinking that it's going to be fine, I have coverage, and you don't. And so that's like that's what insurance carriers do a lot is when they see some trends starting to appear or there's lawsuits, they will actually put together an actual form excluding coverage. They did the same thing with drones about five years ago yeah. where they started adding drone coverage, whether you had an exposure or not. Yeah, I, I, I seem to recall uh, years ago when there was the whole pit bull craze, uh, insurance companies started to issue specific exclusions for specific dog breeds mm -hmm. for homeowners policies. Now that's pretty standard across the country, isn't it? Yeah. Okay. Interesting. For what they think are like breeds that are vicious, so yeah. German Shepherds, Yorkies, <laughs> definitely yeah. Yorkies, Yorkies, Dachshunds, mm -hmm. vicious Yorkie Dachshund villains, mm -hmm. the worst. Okay. Interesting. Um, now, you've also described, and I clearly understand, that, that you would want insurance for your own personal liability protection because, you know, God forbid something you did or a product you put out there in the world hurts somebody badly, uh, you could get sued for that. And, mm -hmm. you know, you're having to now pay a lawyer and possibly a big fat judgment if you lose. And if you've got good insurance coverage, it covers all that. Your premium will, will buy you that protection. Uh, but beyond that, isn't is insurance also essential to get products into stores? It should be. Um, it depends on what state you sit in. So like if we're talking about cannabis, for example, sure. because um, we have um, most of the states that are doing that now, some states require that you have um, general liability and products liability. Other states do not. Um, but it is to the benefit um, for any entity to have products liability because you never know what's going to happen. You never know what kind of um, a reaction might happen if your product goes bad, even though you do everything that you can to make sure that it doesn't. Yeah. You just never know. And so you have, you know, when we're talking about things like in this market space, you have millions and millions of dollars of product going out in a broad variety. And so that's basically what the carrier looks at as the exposure. So it's a numbers game. At that point, hmm. so it would be it behooves any en entity that's selling a product to anyone, whether it's to the public or to a dispensary or to anybody in the supply chain, to make sure that they have adequate risk transfer, and that whoever's receiving that product is transferring their risk back onto the to the lower level. Yeah, like, like like using my Tide Pod example in Target. Mm -hmm. Uh, if I'm a manufacturer of Tide Pods, there's like no chance Target is ever going to allow me to put my product on their shelves unless I meet several criteria, amongst which is showing I actually have insurance covering. Mm -hmm. 
because Target is no way going to want to accept that liability. All of the big box stores make you have that specific requirement. And then when we go to limits, it depends on what you're actually selling that they might make you have a higher level of limit of liability. So I've seen those based off of different manufacturers that I've worked with. Um, and those insurance requirements are set up so that the big box store doesn't have to incur any legal defense, legal costs, anything like that, because all they're providing is a shelf. Yeah, so they're they're almost in that sense, like a, this is totally over-analogizing, but almost like a public space. You're just visiting. 100%. Okay. The only, so in a, in a situation where we're talking about Target or Walmart or any of these box stores or a retailer, the only exposure they should really have, unless they're manufacturing their own product, is the slip, trip, and fall, which which I was talking about earlier. That's their exposure because they're just a warehouse at that point. Right. That makes sense. My God, the paperwork running a place like Target must be horrendous. They don't want any part of it. (laughs) Yeah, no kidding. Uh, But lots of jobs, lots of careers, folks at home, if you're you're looking for that. (laughs) Yeah. All right, so so in in the instance of psychedelics in particular, because I can't envision Target stocking them anytime soon, but pharmacies might. There are there are several uh, different types of psychoactive substances right now that are under study, and a few of these are deep in uh, phase now for FDA approval. Uh, mm-hmm. In point of fact, there are some psilocybin derivatives and some MDMA derivatives that are at phase three, and mm-hmm. the expectation is somewhere between two and four years, FDA will give them approval and take them off schedule one and drop them down. I don't know, maybe schedule three or four. Right. Uh, at that point, then pharmacies can stock it. So I'm assuming it's kind of the same thing for like a pharmacy chain, like a CVS or a Walgreens. Same thing. They're not going to stock your product unless they're seeing an insurance certificate. Absolutely product. not, because they're only providing the shelf space for you at that time. They're not the ones that are manufacturing it. They don't have hands on the product at that point, basically. So um, from that viewpoint, in a very simplistic way, is why should they pay for something they're not responsible for? At that point. So, yes, eventually when we get to that space, there should be a high risk transfer or pass through basically where the, the, the entity that is selling to the end user is basically absolved at that point for anything seen from a manufacturer's standpoint. Okay. So now, taking this to the next place, we, we said a little earlier that generally speaking, things that are illegal aren't insurable. But yeah. we, we have seen the cannabis industry sort of overcome that problem to a degree, even though federally still completely illegal. Mm-hmm. So how, how do insurance companies overcome that? They just make a conscious choice, yeah, I'm going to insure that activity? I think they have to uh, think a lot of what happens when there's something new in the space. Um, when cannabis was there is they didn't really know what they were doing, how they were going to insure it, what the actual... Um, losses were going to be. So everybody, I think at first, was afraid of um, products liability. And then there yeah. were then there were some people that were of the opinion of, well, it's illegal from a federal standpoint. The only way that you can get it is medicinal. So if you have a medical problem that you're trying to approach the cannabis for, well, there's no way that you can approach a lawsuit for a claim because you're already sick so then you'd have to prove that you got sick from the cannabis yeah yes and no it's still a product um as you are aware um with the whole testing um, mechanism of that is that there is a whole horde of different things that can 
happen and matriculate in these plants that could make somebody even more sick. Oh, for, for sure. Yeah, if you've got, a, like, for example, an immunocompromised patient who's taking for medical purposes and they're inhaling, say, a mold spore-laden uh, bud, uh, they could end up having a mold infection just for having used that product. So, Which at that point, would you be able to go back and point to that situation? So I think that... Um, if you're in a state with testing and there are records... And, and you're actually testing. And you're actually testing. Uh, that's another topic for another day, kids. <laughs> and uh, Don't get me that's started. That's waiting, yeah. Yeah. It's, um, it's vexing for both people in this room. We'll, yes. we'll, just, we'll leave it there and not say another word. Maybe. Maybe. Well, not on this show. <laughs> uh, but yeah, test, testing is critically important for, for potency and purity, uh, no doubt. Um, right. All right. Interesting. So, fine. You, you've got companies now that have decided, yeah, we're going to cross our own line. Mm-hmm. We're going to have to assess some risks and then set premiums. Mm-hmm. And as I have seen, and I have not personally experienced because thank God I don't run one of these businesses, mm-hmm. uh, but those premiums are trash air. They're, yeah. not, they're not cheap. We're not talking your homeowners or auto policies. Mm-hmm. They're bloody expensive. Uh, and I suspect uh, a psychedelic insurance product is going to have an even more intense premium cost, assuming you can find it. Uh, yeah. All right. So let's let's uh, parlay by analogizing off of the known, which is the cannabis world right now, mm-hmm. and then we'll sort of project into what we think psychedelics will be. So talk to me a little bit about, about insurance policy pricing, how companies arrive at it, and what kind of dollars are we talking? So... I mean, with anything with insurance, when it comes to premium, we're talking to actuaries. And they're trying to take modules from different elements of different uh, industries and trying to project that. Um, Usually, anytime you have a carrier that wants to jump in, or if you're trying to look at a captive option, um, for example, is you really want to be able to look at 10 years worth of losses to figure out from an actuarial perspective where your loss pick is. And from an insurance perspective, that's where they have a math formula that determines what they think they will pay out in losses for any given time or period of time. Um, And that's how they promulgate the rates um, that are from there. But for psychedelics, that kind of hasn't been there yet. There's no data to mine to to make predictions. So the entire model then of insurance premium pricing ultimately is a predictive model. 100%. But you're basing it off of past data. So the better your data, theoretically the better your prediction. Right. So that is, for example, why like auto policies, relatively cheap. Yes. Because we just have such incredible high volume in data. Right. Okay. So in, in the cannabis world, um, they're factoring having to pay claims mm-hmm. in an unknown environment where there hasn't been much of a track record, for example, of um, product liability mm-hmm. and consumer lawsuits. Mm-hmm. But that's coming, and there's been a little bit, I suspect. There's already. more movement going in yeah. that direction. Okay, so that's definitely going to impact premium pricing. Eventually. Right now, uh, the insurance carriers are riding a wave because there hasn't been any product liability suits yet. Okay. Eventually, that will come to a halt. And then we're going to see a change because they're actually going to have claims and payments to study and redistribute the rates appropriately. And in all that, is there ever the risk or possibility that these things could become uninsurable? Yes. That nobody will write policies for them? Yes. 
So anytime you're working with an insurance carrier and you've had what we call experience, and that's your loss history. So You guys call that experience? Yes, <laughs> it's your loss experience. Super fun. That's such a gentle euphemism. Yes. You're either, either experienced really good or really bad. Mm. So that's your loss run. So that's, um, you know, in auto insurance, they take a look at your past claims history, and then that's how they can use their predictive index to decide whether or not you're a good risk. So that's what they're going to start looking at once there's claims. And if you get to a point where you are a bad risk and there's no carriers that are going to write you, at that point, it's the ter- determination that's made for you that you're self-insuring everything that you're doing. And at that point, it's kind of that financial consideration of do we even do this anymore? Exactly. So you're right back to where you started, which is you are doing what you do, but you're fully exposed to the full measure of whatever liability could come from it because you don't have insurance and can't get insurance. Okay, so for you wannabe startup psychedelics companies, take heed. Uh, your behaviors could, if you don't have insurance, get you in, in really deep trouble. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and I'll add an extra layer of, of uh, rotten cheese on top of that, that awful burger. Depending on what you're doing, there may not even be an opportunity to escape liability through bankruptcy. So yeah. for example, uh, the participants in the cannabis industry they can't go file bankruptcy. So if they get a major liability hit, even just a basic debt that they owe, mm-hmm. that's for life. Yikes. Well, and then, <laughs> you know, when you're looking at things um, from a nonprofit perspective, too, if you have a board of directors, which we can get into, we'll get into that. Uh, yeah, and that's where I wanted to take it next, so just run with it, because that was, yeah. my, that, that was um, my mental segue. I'm glad you picked that there's, up. There's an opportunity there to sort of pierce the corporate shield, because you have a board of directors that's making financial decisions for a nonprofit entity, and the people, as you know, if it sits it on a board, are personally held responsible for any decisions of the board. Yeah, well, and I, I would even take it further. It's not just limited to nonprofits. You could be a for-profit yes. board, and what I can readily envision, and I'll paint a realistic portrait of a lawsuit that could absolutely happen. Uh, let's say that you're a, a, a cannabis provider, you're a dispensary or a cultivator, and you're supposed to be doing testing. Let's say your state's got a mandatory testing regimen and you've decided for whatever reason, good or bad, and I can't imagine there's a good reason, but you've decided nonetheless, uh, yeah, I'm just I'm not going to do the testing or I'm not going to do the testing as thoroughly as I'm required to. Yeah. yeah, maybe it's too expensive or I'm just cheap and I just can't be bothered, whatever. It takes too much time. Yeah, too much stuff. time, yeah. You think of a thing, throw it out there. Uh, but you decide whatever, you're just not going to do it or not do it thoroughly, and you put your products out there, well, and lo and behold, one of their more is adulterated and somebody gets seriously hurt. Mm-hmm. And let's say you've got insurance. Now, uh, and I'm talking DNO insurance here. So now we can what talk, We can talk DNO or products liability in this case, too. Yeah, actually both. I'm following right where you're going. Absolutely. And then for the folks at home who don't know what DNO insurance is, it's director and officer insurance. It's a specific insurance product that you buy as a corporate officer to protect you in your behaviors as a corporate officer. Mm -hmm. And in this instance, we're talking about a hypothetical corporate officer who's made a conscious decision to uh, not follow the law Mm -hmm. and to put a product out there that ultimately, because they didn't follow the law, hurt somebody. Mm -hmm. So in that circumstance, that injured plaintiff can sue. And they're going to sue, as you've indicated, for product liability 
bases because the product itself harmed them, mm-hmm. but they could also sue the corporate officers and yeah. go right through that corporate wall on premise that those officers made a conscious business decision to do something that ultimately proved unlawful and harmed somebody. Mm-hmm. Right? Mm-hmm. All right. So <laughs> what happens then? There's no coverage. No coverage. So you paid your premiums, folks. Which are extremely expensive. Extremely expensive premiums. And then you just didn't do what you were supposed to do and screwed it all up for yourself. So now, not only are you out those premiums, which the company is not going to refund you. Nope. Those are earned. You're also getting sued. And if there's a big fat judgment, you now own that big fat judgment personally. Plus the defense you have to pay for. Plus the defense. And uh, can attest, lawyers are not inexpensive. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> right. Anyway. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, th- I hope we're painting a, a picture of nightmare for people at home yeah. who are wanting to get into this realm. It, it should be something that, that has a lot of thought. And, um, you know, anytime you're, t- you're talking to all of your advisors, the insurance person needs to be key in that because anything you do in an entity will end up touching the insurance at some point. And so it's important for the insurance agents to understand all elements and to ask those questions that they need to know because um, we have a professional responsibility to make sure that we are checking those boxes and understanding what exposures might not be covered because of decisions that you're making or because of something that you just decide that you wanna spin off and run into and thinking that, well, I pay, you know, two, three hundred thousand dollars a year for all my policies, so they better cover me. Well, that's not always an option. Yeah. So it's critically important to have a thorough conversation with your insurance broker so they know the full panoply of need you've got and can also make recommendations. The good, the bad, and the ugly. Yeah, for sure. So I, I would suspect most people's experience with insurance is just buying, you know, car insurance or homeowner's insurance. And, and these days, it's such a prescripted product. It's... Maybe five minutes with an agent if you spend that much time. Buy it on Google now. Absolutely. You don't even have to talk to another human being. No. But when we're talking this kind of insurance, you absolutely want to be talking to a human being, correct? And a human being that understands the the landscape of what you're in. So, you know, in, in my industry, it's almost like the gold rush. Everybody wants to get involved in cannabis, kind of. Hmm. Don't wanna, we don't want to advertise that we're in it. Not by we, I don't mean me. I'm out there, um, but you know, it's it's viewed as as the next big thing. And if you're talking to somebody who's just getting into it, they don't know the intricacies that are in the policies and what the underwriters are actually looking for to be able to explain on a holistic basis everything that's happening in the company. Mm. Yep, that makes sense. So let's let's do this. Let's let's pretend I am a, a potential. Uh, well, I guess we'll keep using cannabis as the example. Sure. I'm a potential dispensary customer for you. So I come to your office. I'm like, hey, Danielle, I'm opening up a dispensary. What do I do? What do I need? How, how do we even begin that conversation? What does that look like? Uh, a typical conversation. I mean, it doesn't. We can use cannabis if if we want to. But any company, it's you know, let's tell tell me about what you want to do. What your um, what your goals are, what you're intending to sell, and tell me a little bit about that process. Um, so in your case for a dispensary, they are an end user. So my questions are normally, where are you sourcing your product from? Are you sourcing it? Are you manufacturing it yourself? Tell me a little bit more because 
the way my mind works with insurance is the more that you talk to me, I'm placing things um, in the application or I'm placing things in my mind how I'm going to write a narrative to the insurance carrier to show that we've de-risked you as much as possible. Or if I'm talking to you and I see that there's large holes and gaps in what the insurance carrier is going to want to see to lower your premium and also to insulate you from um, having a loss, that's where I'm able to come in and put those things together. All right, let me, let me pause you there then to make sure I'm understanding. So besides just me as the customer pitching you on what I need, you as the Asian broker are also pitching me back on certain business behaviors so that I can make myself stronger, better protected, and also hopefully get into an insurance product that is more, not less affordable. Yes. All right. Excellent. That should be the goal. Um, that should be the goal of all agents. We know that there are um, behaviors out there where we just take whatever we can get as face value and throw it at the carrier and we get what we get, especially in this marketplace right now because it's scarce relative to demand. So everybody in the, in the cannabis space or what's coming out with psychedelics is going to need that coverage, as we've talked about, you have to have this coverage because if not, you're out there alone. Um, and there's not a lot of carriers out there and whatever price they put on that, you're willing to pay it at that point because if not, yeah. the ramifications will put you under. It's legitimately an all or nothing scenario. 100%. That point. All right. All right. Cool. Um, all right, so now, uh, we've now gone through my, my intake interview, you've identified things I'm doing right, things I'm doing wrong, maybe I go back and correct them so that you can actually check the he's doing it right boxes, then what do you do? You've got a, a group of different underwriters you send this to and they vet it? Yeah, uh, I, I go out to the marketplace and I um, elicit an auction, um, is what I call it. So I take out the best version of you. And I put that out to the market, and um, what I hope to accomplish after I've de-risked things and offered my, my services is send that out and make you really, really attractive to the limited number of markets that there are so that they actually start competing against each other to lower the premium, which means you're getting the coverage that you want at the, at the reduced rate. But then what I've also done at the same time too, after we've talked for a little while, is I'm also lowering your ability to um, be held to accountable for things that have happened. We all have mistakes, and that's what insurance is ultimately for, is for the big uh-oh. Um, but what we do together is we work together to make sure that that big uh-oh doesn't happen, and if it does, it's something that we totally didn't see coming, where, you know, um, a rocket falls out of the sky and decimates your building. Those I'm suing Bezos, obviously. Mm -hmm. Products liability, folks. Yeah. <laughs> oh, it could, could be Musk. I'm just going with Bezos, though. I'll go with that one. He's <laughs> got more money. Better target. I feel like he's also coming up with a product, too, for insurance, so. Oh, probably. Uh -huh. Pro probably. Yeah, it's going to come Google. I forget which one's I, I don't getting into the space. I don't doubt it. And eventually they're going to scoop up psychedelics and cannabis, too. For sure. I, I well, suspect. Well, I, I read an article today that he's starting to lobby for federal legalization of cannabis. Yeah, which is a prelude to owning it all. Uh-huh. Um, I suspect. They own everything anyway. So. Yeah. Somebody's got to. So Hire me. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I just want the check. Don't, yeah. I don't want to actually work for it. <laughs> 
All right. So, uh, by the way, what you just described, though, is is the value of going to a broker as opposed to a single underwriter agent, right? Yes. Because you can go and shop to a lot of companies as opposed to if you work for just a single company, you really would only take the application back to your company. Most likely, yeah. In the in the uh, psychedelic and cannabis space right now, you have to work with a broker or you have to work with somebody like an independent agent, which is technically what I'm classified as, yeah. to be able to approach different markets. Eventually, we'll have the state farms that are selling the product or we'll have the... Um, all states or you know the, the the dedicated markets to that um or it would only be like that right now but i from what i understand is that the agents that are working for those um captive companies um they are accessing brokers on their own to be able to take it out so you're going through different layers and different people touching your account and then you get into a situation where you're almost playing telephone so what you told the agent is not exactly the translation of maybe what the agent's going to tell the broker, that the broker's going to tell somebody else that's another broker that's going to eventually get to the carrier. There's several different layers. <laughs> okay. Sounds mm-hmm. a bit like a kindergarten game, but I dig 100%. it. hundred percent. Okay. Sometimes right. when we get the quotes back, we're like, not what I said. <laughs> well, and on that point of not what I said, so let's say you, you've successfully shopped it. We, we've got a, an underwriter who's like, yep, we will write that policy and they send the invoice for the premium and I take the big gulp and I'm like, okay, I'll write that check and I write that check. That's not the end though, is it? I've still... Well, before you write that check... Oh, there's more. Ah, yeah. Okay. Yeah. yeah. So you can pay for it. Um, but what's really important is that anything, especially new products that are coming out um, onto the marketplace, uh, when it relates to carriers is that the carriers will reduce the amount of coverage they're willing to give you so they slap on all kinds of exclusions and so you want to be able to go read those exclusions that, that was actually where i was going next yeah. so thank you again you're, you're anticipating my segue. this, this <laughs> is why because we've had this conversation once or twice in right? my head anticipating yeah. you were coming today so yeah. <laughs> so those those exclusions will get you and they change on the regular depending on what kinds of lawsuits are out there, what kinds of other exposures in different um, verticals. So like what we were talking about is um, when the actuaries are trying to figure out what the rates are, they might look to different industries. So like um, pharmacy, their pharmacology or, you know, different things like that. So for an example, um, with like the jewel cigarettes and the, the vaping products, when those losses started happening, even though it was tobacco, it was still the mechanism that was being used. So on the cannabis side, they started um, slapping on vape exclusions on everything. You couldn't get coverage for vape anywhere. Mm. Come to find out, after a while, there's no longer a vape exclusion. But what we found out in, in the industry is that it wasn't the pen that was getting the people sick. It was the vitamin E acetate. Yep. So now there's a vitamin E exclusion on a different form that you have to go and read. And like in that form, there's all kinds of things like um, kava kava that's excluded. There's um, certain amounts of caffeine. One of the really interesting things that we experienced in the market space over the past six years is when they had a caffeine exclusion, we had to go back and renegotiate that because a lot of our distributors and manufacturers were selling chocolate. Which well, has caffeine. Which has caffeine in it. Yeah. So 
if you didn't know that and you just had your dispensary or your manufacturer creating that product and selling it, you were actually not covered because of that one word caffeine. Right, and that was exactly where I was ultimately wanting to go. So again, you are you are just this is the interview that runs itself. Uh, yeah. So you know, once you've got that policy in hand, that's the beginning, not the end, for for you, the policyholder, because now. You have to make sure you're always doing what that policy says you're doing. Because if you deviate, you could invalidate coverage, mm -hmm. which would be a nightmare. And, I, and in my career, I've seen that happen to people. Yes. And in this space right now, what we're seeing is that if the carrier hasn't specifically rated for it, meaning if you haven't told the carrier that you were doing X, Y, and Z, they are not going to cover it. So even yeah. though the policy provision says we will cover cannabis and you are a manufacturer of um, uh, vape products only, and then you decide, I'm going to get into pre-rolls. Well, the carrier didn't know that you were doing pre-roll, and if there's a loss and you didn't tell the carrier, there's no coverage for that. So it's always having this open dialogue, no matter what you're getting into and wanting to expand your line to have that conversation to make sure that the insurance carrier knows what you're doing. Which is which is why the information you put on that application is critically important. Details matter. Not only that, but in most instances, your application becomes part of your policy. Yeah, I've seen that. Mm -hmm. uh, it, again, analogizing to uh, attorney malpractice. Uh, yeah, absolutely. I, they, it's literally pages of the policy. Mm -hmm. It's stapled right in there because we you know renew every year and we get this mm -hmm. every year, so I see it. Uh, so yeah, 100%. And, and you're right, those become explicit terms of the policy. And if, if you have deviated from what you put in those applications, for sure, it can cost you. Well, and even in cases where the application doesn't become part of the policy, in every insurance policy that's out there um, for anything, um, is there's this little tiny paragraph that says, if you materially change anything in your operations, that would have prohibited the underwriter of making the determination of offering coverage, it's automatically excluded. excluded. Yeah. So you could be sitting out there, in theory, for years, Not knowing. believing you've got coverage mm -hmm. because you never thought to ask the question or tell your carrier, mm -hmm. and you don't have coverage. And you're paying premiums year after year thinking everything's A-OK, -okay, mm -hmm. and then that moment the liability arrives and, oh my god. Mm -hmm. So think about it in a situation of like, let's take a contractor, right? You have a painter. So we're saying, oh, well, we only do like two two stories at most, right? And then this really nice multi-million dollar job comes along and you decide to take it and all of a sudden you have to start using scaffolding. Well, that insurance carrier might not be cool with you doing scaffolding because now there's all kinds of problems that come from that. And if you just take that job and you don't tell the insurance carrier and there's a loss, the carrier could be like, you never told me. And had you told me, I would have canceled the policy or I would not have offered the coverage that yeah. you have. That gives I, them a basis. Either way you lose. <laughs> policy, yeah. Sure. You get that fun um, reservation of rights letter that tells you where in the policy they can find to decline yeah, yeah, coverage. Yeah, <laughs> those aren't fun to get for for sure. My my partner Sam, uh, you know, he does a lot of personal injury work. So yeah, we we see reservation letters all the time, and it's always you know the carrier saying, ah, we're not sure yet. 
but we're definitely looking for a way to shake you loose. Mm -hmm. But we'll come along for the ride until we figure that out. For us, that's pretty much the death knell where we start pulling forms and go, uh, yeah. Yeah, and, and I've, I've seen it go to the extreme that carriers will, will ride for a while doing the coverage evaluation, and if they're ultimately not content to stay in, they will actually file lawsuits against their own customer seeking a court declaratory judgment that yes the instance this party has put forth is not covered by the policy mm -hmm. so the weirdest part is you could be in the middle of a lawsuit against somebody whom you have a legitimate grievance and then suddenly find yourself in a lawsuit with your own insurer mm -hmm. uh, that is not uncommon i see that happen yeah well and then we could take it one step further and if you knowingly withheld that information and wanted to submit a claim, you could be looking at some kind of uh, allegation of insurance fraud too. Ah, okay. Well, we haven't even touched on that. <laughs> talk, yeah, talk. Yeah, we won't go deep into that. Yeah. but but it's a it's a worthy topic. So yeah, tell tell folks at home about insurance fraud and, and what that looks like. And it's not good. No, well, no. I mean, Anything with fraud like, in the name is usually yeah, bad. Yeah, it's, it's you know just like anything. Is there a positive a, fraud? We have to find one. I'm dedicated. I'm, I'm dedicated. I, I want to find good fraud. <laughs> I don't know if it exists. I Sorry, I didn't so. interrupt you. Keep um, yeah. So insurance fraud. You have to be. You have to be honest with your insurance carrier. You can't misrepresent um, yourself in any direction. Um, when the loss happens and when that lawsuit hits, everybody's going to start digging into everything about your company. So it's almost like getting audited by the IRS. They're going to want to see records. They're going to want to see things, and they have the right. To do that because remember how I was telling you earlier when you pay the premium you promise to pay the premium and they promise to give you coverage mm -hmm. and it's a legal contract well buried in that contract is all of the things that the insurance carrier is allowed to do at the time of loss as you are passing or you're transferring the risk of them insuring you so they have a whole bunch of rights that they can look at things and they can kind of like look under the table and, and you know, in the closets to figure out what's really going on. Yeah. And if they find misrepresentation, it's up to them to decide how they want to do it. Yeah. And, and speaking of reading the policy too, my experience, I have never yet met a client in 30 years of law practice who has sat down and said, oh yeah, I read the policy. I've never met that person. Nobody reads these. No. Nobody, nobody, nobody. But it's critically important. You really should. And, and there are lawyers who just specialize in the niche of reviewing insurance policies because mm -hmm. it's that bloody important and also that arcane. And, and, and to that point, for those of you at home who've never actually bothered to read an insurance policy, I, I can't honestly recommend it. It will induce migraine. But these things are intensely dense. They are written by armies of lawyers mm -hmm. who have given the deepest of deep things. And they it's like a the rules of a, a board game, a Monopoly game, where you know they're writing out precise paths of behavior where you are going to be in coverage or out of coverage. And sometimes you have to reread the paragraph and the paragraph two paragraphs below it five or six times because of one word that will change the oh, direction yeah, of yeah, policy. Yeah, yeah, uh, for sure. And then, uh, you know, you made the point earlier about the policy having a bunch of exclusions at the end. So you have to read all of that, too. Because mm -hmm. if you start reading from cover page one all the way through the back, you may pass through phases in that policy where you've got coverage, and you're thinking, I've got coverage, great. But then you get deeper in, and, well, now we've got an exclusion page where they take it away. And then 
but wait, there's more. Oh, yes. <laughs> they might give it back to you in another page, but to a specific limit. So there's all kinds of fun surprises yeah. um, in an insurance policy. But to your point, as you said, a lot of people don't read these policies. That's why I get paid a commission is to be able to review those and make sure that I'm going over those exclusions with you. Because again, we've talked about your or we've talked about your business and you've told me the good, the bad, and the ugly of everything. Mm-hmm. Because if I don't know, I can't go to that policy and make sure that I'm addressing anything or ask going back to the carrier and negotiating a coverage or an exclusion that might be absolutely necessary for your business. Yeah. All right, now let's turn this specifically to the world of psychedelics, because yes. I, I know that in past conversations offline, you and I have chatted on this mm-hmm. many times, and you have expressed an interest in going into that realm, but also the fact that there ain't much of a realm you have to go into. No, nothing. So, uh, yeah, th- tell people what this is like. like I, you know, we've got psilocybin, we've got MDMA coming up for possible uh, approval. They will have a different experience, I think. Because it will be considered just, you know, traditional pharmaceutical if FDA approves it, I suspect. I suspect it's the same thing, too, because we can talk about ketamine, too, because there are actual ketamine clinics Oh, yeah, there. you know what? Ketamine's a great... Let's use ketamine yeah, for, for the moment. Yeah, because Right, and that's available and people mm-hmm. uh, can use it in appropriate clinical setting. What's it like getting insurance for them? Yeah, it's going to be interesting. Going um, to be? Like, there's literally no insurance right now? There's got to be insurance there for There might be one or two. I haven't had the opportunity to delve into that and to see what that's like. Okay. However, like we've been talking about with forms and everything else and making sure that you're telling your agent what you're doing. Mm-hmm. If you are a general clinic and then you decide to hop into it, you need to make sure that the carrier that you're with is, is okay with you exposing yourself to a brand new um, situation where you're basically exper- experimenting with ketamine in a, in a controlled setting, but also with people that have problems mentally and emotionally where you're yeah. dabbling in those things, and that leads into a whole different realm of um, what the probability, not even possibility, probability will be of you getting a claim across your desk because somebody doesn't like the way it turned out or maybe it didn't work. You know, and by the way, as you're mentioning that, it's making me think too, and we haven't talked about this at all, is the limited number of carriers, and you still have to choose amongst them. And there are crappy carriers out there. Lots of crappy carriers. Um, you know, there are rating systems on purpose in order for the consumer to know if the company is solvent. You know, just because you buy the policy doesn't mean they're going to be there when you put in a claim. And I have actually had uh, two cases in my career where exactly that happened. Well, remember, most of these are going to be excess and surplus lines, so that's a different thing. Um, if you have, like, the travelers and the liberty mutuals of the world, those are what we call admitted carriers. So that means that they register with the state, and the state basically says, if these carriers become insolvent, we'll pick up the tab. But the E and S, excess and surplus lines carrier, don't have that solvency issue. So if they go under and they have no more money to pay and you have a claim, you're caught holding the bag. Yeah. Um, the most horrendous iteration of that I experienced in my career was um, a physician's risk group. It was a bunch of plastic surgeons who decided to pool their own resources and be self-insured as a group. 
Yeah. Uh, and I had a woman who had a really botched plastic surgery, like really botched. Um, and she had to sue. And the doctor that did this was insolvent. So all that was left was the insurance company that he had. And we went after the insurance. And they were like, oh, sorry, we're insolvent too. See ya. Mm-hmm. Uh, luckily, I was able to pull a claim against the directors of that insurance company. And we did exactly what you and I described a little earlier in the conversation. I went right through it all and went right at the share or the shareholders of this insurance company personally. Mm-hmm. Um that's what it took. But yikes, to know that you would pay premiums and your insurance company wasn't there. Right, and in your when case, you needed it. somebody's going to find the money. Yeah, absolutely. They will find it. Like, life finds a way, right? You will find a way to the money. Yeah, so so message here for those of you at home, just because you find that carrier and that policy and, you know, you've got a premium that you're at least willing to stroke the check for, you're still not necessarily going to be covered. Yeah. I mean, I mean, you'll have the policy, but if they're not going to be solvent and not going to be there five years from now when you need them, do you really have the policy? Yeah, well, so. and then in some cases, too, as an insurance agent, um, with our own um, professional liability policies, we're held to a certain degree of the types of carriers that we can lay with. Mm-hmm. So they have to meet a certain financial standard. They have to meet a certain grade level um, because... Our professional liability um, carrier doesn't want to take on the risk for us just randomly writing policies with anybody and then leaving their clients out to dry, basically, if there is a claim because this carrier is, is about to be financially insolvent. For sure. Um, okay, so getting back to the, the, the ketamine example. So the difficulty is getting insurance to cover for the uses of ketamine in what would be a non-traditional setting. As we've said, ketamine is Schedule Four. It's a known, uh, well, used, well, not used to, it still is, it always right. is, a surgical anesthetic. But it just happens to have these other benefits, and it's considered off-label use to use it for these other benefits, but not forbidden. It's totally okay. Doctors can prescribe it, pharmacists can compound and issue it, uh, but it's got to be in a clinical setting, so that's why you see these clinics pop up. But the insurance industry treats these clinics differently because they're using the ketamine differently. Right? Yes. So it's not for its intended use. Right. Um, so totally different experience if I'm a surgical center and I'm an anesthesiologist. Right. And it hasn't totally been recognized by the FDA as an approved treatment for depression or... And never will be, by the way. Right. Never will be because no one will invest the money in it. No. We still have to go through R&D. Look at... I mean, yeah. I mean we go back up to Schedule 1 with cannabis. There's been not a lot of research about that either, so we don't really know what the capabilities are because it's just hasn't been researched. Yeah, exactly. And ketamine is now so old, it's out of patent. So even if you were to research it, you'd never be able to own exclusivity over it. So nobody will ever do it. It's millions and millions of dollars to get that FDA approval. Yeah, there's that. And, you know, Right now, it's still extremely experimental too. So we're still we're still like lightly dabbing dabbling into it. Um, you could also be lightly dabbing that too, <laughs> which the combination might be exciting. That was a little fun. psychedelic humor, folks. <laughs> Sorry, um, gotta take them one. You gotta them. do it. Yeah, yeah absolutely. It was right there. I had to. It would, it would have <laughs> been wrong it. not to. I lobbed it up. For absolutely, you. You absolutely. All right. So uh, now, do you know what's going on in Oregon at all? Yeah. Okay. Let's talk about that, because I've got connections up there, and we've all been talking about, oh, my God, what is this going to look like? So let me set the stage for people at home who might not know. Mm-hmm. 
in the last general election back in November, Oregon, God bless them, passed a psilocybin law, mm-hmm. Measure 109. And, and what it's going to create uh, now, I guess within another year and a half, is a state-sponsored, state-run psilocybin program that's going to look and feel uh, probably a lot like cannabis programs uh, under a medical program scenario. So sort of, for, yeah. Sort of, but not, not spot on. So it's not going to be a home use at all. Rather, the way the Oregon program is going to work, they're going to define who can be a participant, who can be a provider, and there's going to be subsets of providers ranging from the actual location service provider mm-hmm. to the cultivator uh, and maybe manufacturer, too, if there's some modification going on. And, oops, my phone just did And um, the process that you, that you yeah. can partake in. Absolutely. So what's going to happen, you're going to have to be, as a, let's just say, a, a patient, mm-hmm. you're going to have to, A, be qualified, and you'll have to attend some sort of an orientation. Mm-hmm. Then when you're ready, you will take your session, but it has to be on-premises yes. at their facility. You're not going to have any home psilocybin, nothing, nothing like that at all. No. Uh, and then their final piece, as, as the patient, you will be offered an optional integration session if you want it. But the way the statute's written, you don't have to take it. So I'm looking at the providers, you know, mm-hmm. the people who want to apply and go get that psilocybin center license, open their doors and make themselves available to the public to come and partake. Mm-hmm. What is the probability of being able to get insurance for that? Right now, zero. Zero. There's um, nobody out there. Nobody out there. Is from, anybody to looking my knowledge, nobody's out there ready to provide the coverage. Then again, we don't have anything out there that has been passing the, yes, this is how we're going to do it. These are the actual rules. We're ready to roll that out. Because I think in Oregon, it's 2023 before they're able to actually start doing the business portion of it. So right yeah, now they're in the a statute two-year... statute had a two-year uh, delay fuse yeah, so that they research. can create rules and regulations, which they're actively working on. I, I you don't know this, but two days ago, I did an interview with a lawyer up in okay. Oregon exactly on this. I haven't right. po- I haven't posted it to the channel. Yeah, and but, I saw something that they have a meeting coming. on on the rules and the regs. I don't know if it was in September or October. I was playing on the website yeah. the other day. Um, but the way that I look at this eventually when there is a product available, um, and I think we talked about this really briefly um, in one of our conversations, was that the way I'm seeing this, it, it will be very much like a... Um, a detox facility um, for addicts um, where they have to go on the facility at that point they are sometimes um, distributed different kinds of medications to help them with their withdrawal symptoms different things um, and that nature in a controlled setting it's not yeah. like we're just giving them you know whatever drugs and telling them you know go home and, and detox there and we have all these okay. different um, scenarios that you can encounter so I think it's going to be the same way so we have a couple of different um, exposures that we would be looking at. So, products liability, yes, you have the slip, trip, and fall. You have the professional because you have a professional that's that's prescribing the dosage. And then, based off of what I think I remember from Oregon, is that there will be a, a trip guide with you that's basically sober watching you go through this process to talk you through anything because you never know how you're going to take yeah, they, they, they will require facilitators on, on premises during session. Uh, interestingly, uh, John Dennis is who I interviewed. John and I talked about this. 
He says that is still a subject of debate amongst the committee members. They're trying to establish a reasonable ratio of facilitator to patient. You know, this is just an opinion based off of um, the insurance perspective and how bad things could get. Um, but if you have a one-to-one -one ratio and you have somebody who is not at a normal state of mind, that opens up an extreme exposure for sexual abuse and molestation claims because you don't know what's happening nor where you at had the ability to say no. Oh yeah, and, and it's interesting you say that too because I have noticed in the different news and fora that I follow online an uptick in the number of stories about people going to psychedelic retreats out of the country and being the victim of sexual assault. Mm -hmm. And I don't know if it's on the rise or just it's being noticed more and thus being written about more, but for sure, that's that's one amongst myriad uh, concerns. And I, I agree that the risk potential there is tremendous. Well, yeah, I mean, you, just, you, you don't know what's happening. And to your point, I think it's just something that's being noticed more. It's almost like, you know, you, know, you go buy a red truck and all of a sudden, all you see on the road is a red truck. Yeah, there's a name for that phenomenon, by the way. I, I can't remember what it is, but it's I'm not some sort of perceptual well awareness. Enough to figure that out. I'm yeah, like, there, there's a there's a term for that. Yeah. I, I can't remember it though. Um, interesting. So you're thinking from the liability perspective, and a, uh, an underwriter or a carrier would prefer to see something in the realm of more than one facilitator per patient. Oh, think about it this way: um, when you're a female and you go visit a, a OBGYN, you are never in the room alone with him or her. Yeah. There is always somebody there because it's extremely personal and yeah. the, the, the susceptibility to anybody being, you know, either the doctor or the patient at that point, that person is there specifically to witness and make sure that everybody's comfortable at oh, that for point. Sure. So it doesn't make sense when we're putting somebody in a situation from a psychedelic perspective to be on a one-on-one. -on -one. There is a vulnerability there. 100%. Yeah, well, recent news about what happened to our poor gymnastics team uh, over the several years, I mean, yeah. that's an excellent illustration of this. A horrible illustration, but nonetheless an excellent illustration of this. Okay, so if insurance is gonna pressure for multiple people, and if that's the price of getting the policy, that in turn impacts price to the consumer of these services because now all of a sudden this facility who was thinking oh I just need one facilitator per maybe let's say three patients now all of a sudden I need a minimum of three facilitators possibly more that's upping their 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 payroll burden yes. which in turn translates to product cost mm -hmm. which gets passed on to the consumer absolutely <laughs> which makes opening these doors even more challenging mm -hmm. Uh, Everything is going to be cost, cost prohibitive, especially from insurance. Now, will the insurance carrier mandate that that happens? No, but the availability of the product might not be there, or they might price you for that because they're expecting a claim at that point. So you're making your insurance more expensive by not... Like, you're going to pay for it one way or the other. You're either going to pay for it with more employees, or you might pay a higher premium because they're seeing your risk as... Um, harder to insure because the, the mm. availability of a claim happening, it's, it's going to happen. It's only, it's not if, it's when. Okay. And, and what about the possibility, too, of insurance requiring or mandating that if they're going to give you a policy, 
you have to have people of a certain education or credential uh, in, in, in the facility or at least in the organization. So, for example, part of the debate, I, I think, up in Oregon is whether or not they're going to insist upon like full-blown MDs or, or, or PhD uh, type psychiatrists to be a mandatory part of these mm-hmm. psilocybin facilities or not. And the obvious concern there is if you've got somebody who's got high credentials and high education, they can command higher salaries, and, and that in turn also drives cost up. Mm-hmm. So um, I'll go back to cannabis for a second because this is how I think it will work out. Um, um, because we're not at a federally like recognized situation at this point, is that, and, and with any carrier, uh, the coverage of the policy defaults to whatever the regulations are of the state. For sake of what might end up being a spliced, multi-piece, multi, <laughs> multi-chunky, not really consistent audio recording, uh, for the folks at home, we Danielle and I have been talking for damn near about an hour, uh, and I've got multiple recorders in here, but the main audio recorder, for whatever reason, just fritzed out and stopped recording, but it seems to be recording now. But I have okay. audio on the camera, but the camera is a distance from where we're sitting, so I don't know how good the quality of the sound is going to be. Um, but we'll definitely try to we'll figure it out. put it to use. So on that possibility, we're going to consider this a break point in the interview. We'll rewind our conversation a little bit, but start fresh and pick it up yeah. from there. So, uh, boy, I really hope the audio is salvageable. <sighs> we'll figure it out. Yeah. Um, anyway, so what I'd like to get an impression from you is in regards to how insurance is going to be handled, if at all, in Oregon under its new forthcoming psilocybin program. Because right now there are no carriers writing these kinds of policies for these sorts of businesses. No. And uh, what I saw that was interesting in the Oregon um, uh, documents was that they are looking at the possibility of requiring general liability insurance. That was the only requirement. Um, so yes, it's going to be necessary. Uh, kind of the way that I, I view this is it's kind of a mixed bag, basically. So what I see is going to happen in Oregon, based on how we've talked about, is that these are going to be at specific facilities um, with um, patients coming in. They've had their interviews. They're going through that process, um, and it will be in a in a secure location. Um, so the way I was thinking about this would be the same way that we that we run things through from like a, a, a drug detox facility um, where they go in, they're prescribed medication, they're watched at that time, they go through whatever process for however long it's, it's supposed to be based on the determination of the doctors at the location. So I see that as kind of how that's how the insurance carrier might look at it. But... The way any insurance carrier that's going to come into this is they're going to insure based off of the regulations of the state. So any insurance carrier, no matter what it is that you're doing, defaults back to whatever the regulations are of the state. Um, So if you're not complying within state standards, then the insurance may not apply. Because then again, think about it, if you're not complying with what the state says, then you are um, operating your facility illegally at that point. And so the insurance carrier is never going to insure anything that's being done illegally. 
Yeah, well, and not to mention, if you don't have the coverage, and if the coverage is mandatory, you're also at risk of forfeiting your license and any resultant penalties or, or, or punishments that might befall you for that. Which, in turn, if your entire operation is protecting you from state drug laws, on-premise you're in compliance with your licensure, and if you haven't gotten that insurance, which is a condition of your licensure, the downstream effects also include that you could potentially be criminally charged. Yes. For your behaviors in that operation. Yes. Nerve-wracking. Uh-huh. Wow. But so, wait, there's more. But wait, there's more. Go ahead. <laughs> uh-huh. um, so it's based off of uh, the requirements based off of the state, but then, um, like we were talking earlier, and I hope you got that, um, was there's just a, a variety of different exposures that you could have from it. So just because the state says that you should have A, B, and C, there's also things that you should have in place to protect your um, your business. So like what we were talking about before was would the insurance carrier mandate that you have a, you know, a PhD level doctor or a master level because we're talking about um, situations it's not necessarily medical but more from a psychological emotional aspect so do you need a PhD level um, psychiatrist or psychologist at that point maybe maybe not but again that would defer back to what the regulations are of the state so you know when you're having these conversations with, oh, with the key people over there it would be like well ultimately we want to we want to protect the patient and what um, what regulations need to be put in place so that that patient is ultimately protected. And then you would hope that the facility follows those and then the insurance is gonna come over on top and say, you must or we won't. And so in that situation, it just depends on, um, again, what the regulations are of the state. But I might, it would be my hope that any regulations are put in place to keep these people safe because they're not able to make rational decisions at the time of yeah being medicated and I, I realize this comes across almost like a chicken and egg conundrum mm-hmm. but it seems to me the better advice to give to this rules making board in Oregon probably would be don't mandate insurance because you might in making that mandate render this entire program incapable of functioning because if there are no carriers out there willing to stroke those policies, nobody can ever successfully get going, right? Perhaps, but then when we look at that, we, we face the same thing in the cannabis market where they had to have it. Who knows how long it's gonna take before somebody's actually up and running and ready to go Yeah. with those facilities, being able to purchase the product, being able to even manufacture the product because, well, if, if my interpretation of the law is correct, it's decriminalized from being able, from possessing it but it's not decriminalized at this point from manufacturing it. So I think we still have a lag from the time that it's legal to start doing it to when it's actually in production. So mm. we have some lag time. So maybe by that point, somebody will step into, somebody will step and... into it and see, hey, there's some money that we can make All right. into that. So if, if you were having to make a recommendation to this rules-making board, would you be recommending, yes, make insurance mandatory? I mean, I, I realize from a public safety perspective, it makes all the best sense to include it. It makes sense to include it. You know, I think that there's insurance carriers that are kind of watching and waiting and seeing, which is what we do as an industry, and we always wait until it's probably a little too late, yeah. or we learn a disastrous um, lesson from it. 
Um, but I, I don't think that there's going to be so many carriers that are adverse to the psilocybin market as they were to cannabis. We learned a lot from cannabis. So maybe yeah. it's going to be easy. Maybe it's plug and play. It just, you know, it's one of those things where I don't really have a crystal ball. Yeah. But I think that. I think that from a safety standpoint, not mandating specific insurance does a disservice to the people that we would hope to be helping and treating. Yeah. Um, and I imagine as time moves forward, this all solves itself because you'll gather time, distance, data, experience, and more carriers will look at it, do their own actuarials, and come to their own conclusions. Mm -hmm. Okay, so. And maybe there's a clause you can put in there too where you must have insurance if insurance is available. Yeah, and then the, once the, it really the, is. If, the if available language probably would probably at least be a fair. <laughs> I think so. Fair uh, compromise on that. Sure. Okay. And I think that there's a reasonable expectation from the public to be able to expect that they are going to be taken care of if there is something that happens on that facility instead of, well, you know, you did some some kind of an experimental treatment, and you don't really know how it's going to be, so you're on your own. See yeah. You later. Well, on, on that point, have you ever seen carriers require that their insureds use liability waivers with their customers? Not a requirement. Um, strongly recommended. Strongly, actually, no, there are. So, um, I don't remember seeing a specific form, but. Um, for different types of um, coverage, construction. Um, so if you have a general contractor, any kind of a contractor, if they're hiring subs, and there's always a, a form on the policy, which you did some construction law at one yeah, point. Yeah, I've got 30 years of construction yeah. law under my belt. So there's that, there's that pass-through on the insurance policy that says if you hire somebody else, they shall have a million dollars of liability, million dollar or two million per um, aggregate and that they name you as additional insured on their policy I think we're getting there yeah. but I don't know that there's gonna be so it, it makes sense like if I'm sitting in the if I'm sitting in the insurance carriers seat well, I'm transferring all that risk to somebody else because I don't want to take it on yes yeah, absolutely well, I can tell you so from my experiences doing construction law for as many years as I've done um, more often than you'd care to see, uh, generals never even ask the subs for insurance certificates or, hell, even prove they're licensed. So, no, not <laughs> until a claim comes and everybody goes, oh my God, oh, yeah. what do we do? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and then, and then if you got one of these mass defect claims, everybody gets sued. Mm -hmm. Everybody. Every sub on the project, even if they it's weren't It's going to be the same on. thing with products liability or any situation, whether we're talking about psilocybin, ketamine. Um, I even saw some, I was doing a lot of research on um, psychedelics, ayahuasca, when we're talking about churches and, and like religious exemptions from, from psychedelics and things like that. There's always that exposure that's going to be there. Yeah, for sure. And, and you're right to mention psychedelic religious groups too, because they face a lot of these same risks because they're engaged in the same activity of providing a psychedelic substance to somebody who may or may not be appropriate for it or it for them. Well, and there's no way to do it. There's no way to tell whether it is appropriate or not because, you know, 
theologically you're subscribing to what's being taught in the pulpit and if it's right for you or not from a physical perspective. Yeah, yeah. Spiritually is one thing, but mm-hmm. physically, sure. You you ingest this thing, and if your physiology is not in tune with it, you could have problems. Mm-hmm. Which is to say, psychedelics are not for everybody. No. There are plenty of people who shouldn't and, and must refrain. Yeah. Well, and that even that's even not even just for psychedelics, but if we look at different types of medication that are prescribed to us physiologically, if we're not supposed to have that, it can have disastrous consequences. And that's yeah. why we have pharmacists, you know, and you hope that you, that's why they get your your drug list anytime you go to the doctor, because they want to make sure that if they're prescribing something, it's not going to counteract what you're doing. And you're ingesting something that could change the, the makeup of your brain from your serotonin level and different things. And you don't know what that's going to look like. Yeah, for, for sure. Which... You shouldn't be scared at home if you're, <laughs> you got a lawyer and an insurance agent here. I mean, you know, <laughs> the worst could, of the worst could, could the conversation happen. be any more dour? <laughs> yeah, we, uh, we were actually very fun people. It's not always doom and gloom. But uh, kidding aside, I mean, these are the serious things that can come up in these businesses. And it's people like you and people like me helping to look out and, and sort of, you know, march the ramparts and make sure that the perimeter is safe. Yeah. You know, we're, we're an indelible part of the team, for sure. Um, so what, what are your predictions going forward? Where, where do you think insurance goes over the next, say, five to ten years relative to cannabis and separately psychedelics? Uh, cannabis space. I think that, um, you know, there's all kinds of articles being passed around right now that, you know, if the Safer Act comes through, Safe Act comes through, or, you know, we have federal legalization, there's going to be more carriers that jump in don't really know um, from what I know about carriers um, some sit and wait and see what happens the whole landscape of cannabis is going to change once it goes um, federally legal yeah. we're going to have a whole new mess of um, interstate intrastate the whole difference of, of putting that in which is going to cause a lots of logistical headaches yeah um, so while there's more carriers that are getting comfortable with cannabis the way it is now uh, when it gets federal, it's only going to make the headache much more complicated and harder. Yeah, so I, I agree. I, I think federal um, rescheduling or decriminalization uh, comes simultaneously with some benefits, but also with some burdens. Okay. And, and the industry is going to have to almost entirely reinvent itself again, mm-hmm. I, I suspect. Yeah, and the exposure is going to be bigger and scarier and, you know maybe it deters more insurance carriers from jumping into the space because they just don't. This is a complete unknown. Yeah. Um, I think the money's going to be too good. I don't think too many are going to be deterred. <laughs> hopefully, unless, you know, like we said, you know, from the rumblings that we're hearing um, in our research is that, you know, product liability claims are coming. So that could change the landscape a little bit more too. Um, with regards to psilocybin and psychedelics, I think it's going to start opening up. I think it'll be easier than it was with cannabis because we researched, we went through the headaches of cannabis and we've seen kind of where it is right now. Um, but I don't think that we're going to have a, a product available anytime soon that's not going to be ridiculously expensive and going to cover you for the things that you want to be covered for Yeah. or all-encompassing. All right. So, so tying back to Oregon, it sounds like for the next several years, if you can get your doors open, 
you're still going to have a lot of exposure because you're not going to get either full coverage insurance or insurance at all. Mm-hmm. All right. But again, that's where you would want to work with an insurance agent or broker that understands one, what the law is, how it's supposed to work in theory and in practice, and two, understand what the insurance carrier is willing to cover and what those, excuse me, exclusions are. So I think I mentioned to you earlier that there are rumblings of a potential um, uh, directors and officers carrier coming on board for psilocybin. Don't know how close that is. There's been rumbles for a while. but my take on it is it's probably going to be like the first and second iterations of DNO for cannabis where it wasn't covering anything because yeah. we just don't know what that exposure really is. Sure. And, and what about also um, the international markets for insurance? So we know Canada is always years ahead of the United States on all of these issues. Mm-hmm. Uh, they've had cannabis legal there for far longer than we have. Uh, They've been open to a variety of other psychedelics for far longer than we have. Um, Are there products from outside of the United States that one can buy and still have coverage within the United States? Is that even a thing? Uh, It could be a thing. Here's what I don't totally understand about um, Canadian insurance because I don't have access to it as an American citizen. I cannot sell anything, any product in Canada. I have to be a a registered citizen there to sell it. Um, So I don't know what the reciprocity would be from that aspect. Um, But when we're talking about insurance in the States, if you're receiving any manufactured product from outside of the country, you are considered the manufacturer at that point because there's no Mm. specific way to engage reciprocity in a claim because the suit would be brought in the U.S., not in in the country where it was actually manufactured. So that's what we were experiencing a lot with going back to um, cannabis and the vape exclusions. Well, most of the manufacturing of vape was in China, and they were coming back, and my carrier and my clients were saying, well, we're not the ones manufacturing it, so it shouldn't be a problem. Well, traditional insurance always tells us that if you're getting it from a manufacturer abroad, you're bringing it here and you're automatically considered the manufacturer. Yeah, well, who wants to go chase the actual manufacturer down in a foreign country with a foreign jurisdiction and foreign laws where they have hometown advantage? And you don't. <laughs> and I think it's going to be the same thing yeah. in that situation, too, where you can get coverage, but it's going to be parceled out based right. on where you sit. So let me let me uh, get to the ultimate question here of, of the horror show. Can you give me some idea of what kind of cost these premiums are? Like if I if, use cannabis because we, we know what it you know these these dispensaries exist already. So what what do you think like on average a dispensary pays per year just in reasonable insurance premiums for reasonable coverage. Oh God, it depends because it depends on what their sales are and how many locations they are and that's all convoluted into the rate that they're doing. Um, can you can you paint sort of a, a spectrum a range? Yeah, not like the precision here, anywhere from I haven't seen anything less than 60,000. Okay, so 60,000 for a premium and that's like at the bare, bare basement, basement bottom bottom minimum depending on what's going on and again that's 
maybe just a dispensary that's selling product that's not manufacturing it. It gets convoluted if they're vertically integrating all of their grow and their manufacturing and their labeling. That's just more okay. um, rate that you have to go through it. So it's really, really complicated. So if you're if you're a big boy operator with maybe multiple locations, you're paying a lot of money. Like. Seven figure million dollar premium? Maybe depends on like really? what the MSO is doing because you have to remember that the exposure for a product's liability policy is going to be based off of sales. So if you're okay. a multi state operator and you're doing, yeah, the greater your volume, the greater your percentage of risk. Could be. Yeah. Okay, interesting. It's like that for for anything that is a sales um, based rate they're looking at because if you think about it, dollars in, dollars out. That's the potential of the claim of the of them getting a claim. So the more you do, the more it reaches the other people, the greater the chance. Sure, it's the law of large numbers. Yeah, I sell it to one person. It's a lower risk than if I sell to a hundred people. Mm -hmm. That makes perfectly good sense. Okay, seriously, million dollar premium. You could have. Wow. I haven't seen it. I'd love to see it because that'd be amazing <laughs> for me. Yeah, the commission would be fantastic. The commission would be fantastic. Yeah. Um, probably the easier thing to to go off of. Um, and you know, understanding that the policy that I'm talking about has different lines of coverage in it. So I am including property. I'm including um, the general liability, which is slip, trip, and fall. I'm including the product's liability and different um, throw-in coverages. So that's from like a basic package that you're seeing. Okay. Because remember, which we didn't get into, is that what you're going to want to cover is your actual like value of the product that you're storing on premises. And that's, mm. from a property perspective, that's really expensive because theft is huge. Yeah, yeah. Well, and... and uh, Street market value, if somebody wants to come in and steal that stuff, you've got high dollar equipment that they mm -hmm. know that they can sell for a, a massive amount of money. Sure. Or just the product in general of just going out on the street and being able to sell it. It's there, and so that's actually one of the one of the known claims that have been paid is property from theft and burglary and, and different things like that. So that commands a very expensive rate. Yeah, well, and also cash, because these are all cash businesses, and I can't fathom that these psilocybin businesses in Oregon will be able to get merchant services. I can't fathom it. So they're gonna be all cash too. So now you've got the added temptation of a big stack of cash sitting there that somebody's gonna have to protect. Mm -hmm. And, and, I, and I know from news stories right here at home in Phoenix, we've had a few dispensaries been robbed where, where mm -hmm. you know, people showed up with masks and guns and middle of the day just, you know, walked out with a couple hundred thousand dollars in cash and that was the end of it. Yeah. Uh, that definitely happens. So, and yeah. You, when you're talking about employees, you're looking at workers' compensation insurance and, mm -hmm. you know, you could, you could have high costs for that too depending on what you're doing. Um, and, you know, you want your employees to be safe, but there's a number of different exposures when we're dealing with anything that's considered an illicit drug that the outside world wants to get access to and they'll do anything to get it. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Well, thankfully, uh, psilocybin is non-addictive and not the type of substance people typically go, you know, jonesing yeah, for enough to break in somewhere, right. but hopefully I'm right about that, by the way. Uh, but yeah, you know, there, there are knuckleheads everywhere. People will steal anything. Uh, for a quick buck, yeah. Yeah, well, hell, I, I remember um, many, many years ago, back in high school, uh, somebody broke my car window to steal a uh, little $20 car back that was sitting in my back seat. 
they broke a $150 window for a $20 car back. Mm -hmm. Would have made more money had they stolen the window and sold it back to me. So, yeah. People, Nobody has that process of mind, yeah. though, when they're committing a crime. It's for, just, for sure. Yeah. So it's, it's everywhere all the time. Wow. Okay. So th this 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 is really uh, this is really challenging for Oregon to get these facilities open. So the risk, or I guess the the choice then is, in the total absence of insurance, you're really just deciding to hang it all out there and hope to God nothing ever goes wrong. Self-insuring, and just think about one person getting sick or one person having a bad trip and not being able to come out of it or there's just some sort of psychosis that happens after that. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, the I, damages from that could be long-lasting and how do you put a price tag on that? For sure. And I know that the, the Rules Committee in Oregon is going to be including some requirement that the patient can't leave until like either a certain amount of time has passed or they've demonstrated sobriety, right. so to speak. But, you know, God forbid somebody leaves a little earlier before they're really back to baseline. And they get into that, you know, predictable car accident. And you're almost better off killing everybody, honestly, because I could fathom an accident where you leave your, your, your victim brain damaged. Mm -hmm. That is way more expensive than killing somebody. And I mm -hmm. hate to sound cynical about it, but it's absolutely true. Think it, Well, I mean, think about it the same way that you would think about, like, going to a bar. And... Yes, you have a personal responsibility to make sure that you don't get in your car if you've been drinking. But if the bartender overserves you and lets you out the door, they're getting sued for you hurting somebody else. Yeah, those are dram shop laws. Dram yeah, shop laws. Absolutely. And we have no corollary to those right now None. for cannabis or any of these other substances, which means full exposure to full liability still on, on the party doing the survey. Yeah. Oregon? Are you sure? <laughs> I mean, there's a this, lot to talk about. There's yeah. a lot of exposure. These are there. these are all huge concerns that I, I I think a lot of folks are not putting a lot of deep thought into. Um, wow, what else have I not asked you that I, I should be asking you? I feel like there's so much you know. I don't know. I just I I weighed very carefully into this product, um, just because of the psychosis level that goes into it, the amount of exposure that. Um, we just don't know and, and the susceptibility we have within our brains to open up windows and doors that just hasn't been researched yet. Yeah. Not as much on the cannabis side, but we don't, I, do I think it could be very beneficial? Absolutely. All the studies go to show that it's very beneficial, but there's always just that one person that can change. Yeah, yeah. The scope it, of everything. It, it's the it's always the one person. <laughs> it's just that one person. And, and you know, I I can absolutely envision a claim, for example, like uh, somebody goes partakes, has that life altering positive moment, and in turn decides, oh, you know, I really shouldn't be with my spouse anymore. Now that I'm clearer in my mind, I'm just with the wrong person. The other party is now going to say, hey, wait a minute. Damages. Yeah, you, you, you altered my spouse, and now I'm getting divorced, so I'm suing for a loss of consortium, which is an actual tort claim, depending on the state you live in. Some states have eliminated that claim by statute, but it's absolutely mm -hmm. part of a common law tort claim. I could see that happening, sure. How do you get insurance for that? Yeah. <laughs> uh, Third-party action over claim, maybe, on... Well, it's another liability. It's another yeah. product liability moment. It's I another suspect. situation where somebody could could come at you from a third party perspective yeah. and hold you liable. 
And, you know, what are the ramifications from that? And is that something that can be covered? There's still a lot to... Yeah, totally, totally fair. And there's no there's no case law to study on that. So no. what I do think is that Oregon's going to end up being the Colorado where everybody's studying what's happening there and they pull from that all of their, their successes and mistakes. Yeah. All right, so just wrapping up on, on, on the concept of, of insurance for the future psilocybin program in Oregon, what do you recommend people do or be on the lookout for? Is there anything proactive that, that people can do to help foster a market for this insurance? I think um, getting people involved from the insurance marketplace to help design and invent these regulations Right? If you want somebody to play, can you have them come play with you and create the game um, so that they have some, some buy-in to it too? So maybe proactively reaching out to you know some of the main cannabis carriers to see if they're willing to get involved in drafting all of these things. Because then they have a, a, an, an availability and some skin in the game. Mm. That's solid advice. Yeah, I've seen the the roster of professionals who are on the the board for psilocybin in Oregon, and it's it's mostly like uh, MD psychiatrist types, for the most part. There there are others, but that that seems to be the predominance, and they're focusing on the you know the health and safety medical sides, which all makes good sense. But uh, this makes very good sense to me as well to have uh, I mean, somebody from insurance involved. Toss in the, the old MedMel question and say, hey, how would you want this to be covered from MedMel? And you're, I'm guaranteeing you're going to see eyes open and jaws drop of like, you think about that and how that could affect our business. Mm. So, you know, from that situation, I think it's very smart to get somebody from the insurance industry involved. For sure. Well, let that be the final word then, unless you've got a better final word. No, I, I think don't. that's a great way to end this. So I, I'm hoping we didn't freak everybody out at home listening to this <laughs> to make it sound like you know, this is never going to happen or or it's just going to be so impossibly expensive or there's never going to be covered. These are just the trivials of a new industry. It, it's having to create everything from nothing. And, and there's going to be a sort of tempestuous early period where some people are frankly going to get plowed under and eaten and destroyed and others will bubble up to the surface and eventually there will achieve uh, some level of baseline normal. Such is the game of life. Indeed it is. Indeed it is. So what's your prediction? How many years before we see baseline normal? What's <laughs> normal? Uh, okay, well, there you go. That is the final <laughs> word. That, that truly is. So, Danielle, I want to thank you so much for coming and, and doing this interview. I'm sorry our audio got botched along the way. I'm hoping that God will salvage this so that our audience can enjoy it. And if not, we are totally going to do this again. Sweet. Sounds good. So Thanks, uh, I will try to find that mind wipe thing from uh, Men in Black so that yes. we don't remember any of this conversation so we can genuinely act surprised when we do it twice. <laughs> Sounds good. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, thanks so much. Thank you. Uh, Have a question about psychedelics and the law? You're welcome to submit them. Please send your questions to admin at psychedelicalex.com. Submission of questions is not an assurance that they will be used on the show. Also, please be aware that neither the submission of a question nor a response creates an attorney-client privilege between you and the show's host, nor does an answer constitute legal advice. Information provided is for general purposes only. If you need legal counsel, you should hire competent counsel in your community.
Thank you.